Hello and welcome to Behind the Bearcat. This is the podcast where the Northwest Missouri State University Career Services Office chats with Northwest faculty, staff, students, alumni, and friends to hear about their career journeys, how they got to where they are, and how they became Bearcats. I'm Northwest Internship Coordinator Travis Klein. And I'm Hannah Christian, Assistant Director of Career Services here at Northwest. And a very special wrap-up episode we have here, hailing originally from East St. Louis, Illinois, Dr. Clarence Green, who has a Bachelor of Science in Sociology and a Master's Degree in Higher Ed Leadership, both from Northwest, uh, who who is currently the VP of Culture, as well as Chief of University Police, and has been at Northwest for 20... Four. Six years, four years. 24, 25 yeah. Is yeah, yeah. Join me in welcome, welcoming Clarence Green, Dr. Clarence Green. I like that. Dr. Clarence Green. Welcome, Dr. Clarence Green. Thank you, guys. I am honored <laughs> to be here. I'm so excited to, to be a part of this. I've watched all of your episodes. I love going back on YouTube uh, and, and, and watching those and just learning more about you guys as well as uh, your guests. Well, thank you. Yeah, we appreciate that. We've we've had a great time and we've learned a lot. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. People even that we work with, like we interviewed Jill, our boss that we work with every day. And it's amazing. Even someone you work very closely with, you learn so much about them just having a conversation like this. So. Yes, yes. All right. So no pressure here, but this Uh-oh. is going to be our wrap, wrap up episode for season two. So, you know, Excellent. Bring, bring the fire. I'm going to do my best. All right. So. Let's just go right, let's rewind all the way back, 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 back to, to little Clarence Green. Uh-oh. Um, and we'll just start at the very beginning. Uh, so t- you're from East St. Louis. Yes, ma'am. T- talk to me about growing up. Tell me, you know, all the way up to your very first paid job. Okay. Well, I, I grew up in, well, my very first paid job started really as a young kid. I grew up in East St. Louis, Illinois. I was um, a, a typical kid. I, I love to be outdoors love participating in, in neighborhood things. As a, as a young kid, uh, I, I probably was a, a little bad. I was a bad kid. I participated in probably some bad neighborhood things because in our neighborhood, like you don't know as a young kid and growing up in a metropolitan area, what really is a bad thing. A lot of things is represented by the street that you grow up on. And so my street that I grew up on was, was I lived on 34th in college, but grew up on Alhammer Court, you, you know, and then there was some it probably was a gang, for lack of better words, but, you know, you don't really know it, um, but it's your street and it's who you hang with. And the folks on that street or in that neighborhood become members of your your organization and, and, and you just run around with those individuals. And so but still at a very early age, I, I would work in neighbor's yards. I would remove trash. I would do house remodeling. Now, I wasn't I was not very skilled at all of those, but I would do them. Uh, I, I was more skilled at d- demolishing things, tearing them up. My dad was a local handyman, so he fixed cars. So I was changing transmissions on my back on the ground at a very young age, uh, probably 12 years old. I could take transmissions out. I could help put them back in. My father would rebuild them. Uh, and, and so I've always been pr- pretty handy with things. Uh, and so my, my father never paid me for those jobs. Uh, and, and so I learned a lot. Probably one of my greatest lessons as a young kid about money was when I was 12 years old, I wanted to play basketball. I wanted some basketball shoes. And I remember my father told me, uh, figure out, it was like uh, 15% off of these shoes. Uh, and, and, you, and my father said, if you figure those out, I'll, I'll buy them for you. 
Well, I couldn't figure it out. I couldn't figure out what it would come out to be in the price. And he didn't buy them for me. And in fact, he left me at the store, which was probably 25 miles from my home, and I had to walk home. So it was a double learned lesson. But ever since then, it, it made me think a lot about, about learning and understanding things and mastering things. It made me think more about finances and money and, 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 and being responsible with it as well so that you could get things that you needed or wanted to have. And so that was a, a crucial lesson that has stayed with me my entire life. And, and I've never forgot that moment. And it really made me think hard about percentages. So that, that was a great lesson for me. And, and East St. Louis taught me a lot of lessons in life, a great community for me to grow up in, gave me numerous experiences, um, numerous opportunities to learn and participate in team type activities, whether that was learning or athletics or academics. I had a lot of opportunities to learn a lot of different things, which gave me a lot of experiences that I still use in this life. I was really fortunate and blessed, I, I think, to grow up where I did in the era in which I did, because those, a lot of those things I learned, I still use to today. Fun fact, Clarence. <clears throat> I don't think I've ever shared this before, so we'll just uh -oh. let it all hang out on this Friday on our on our final podcast. I was also the leader of my neighborhood gang, Clarence. Uh oh, I wasn't the we, leader. <laughs> we, uh, I was the leader. I mean, uh -oh. we had a smaller neighborhood. You know, we grew up in rural Missouri, but we burned the neighbor's playhouse down whenever oh I was goodness. six years old. Yeah, seven years What's old. What's the statue's limitation on arson, <laughs> Clarence? <laughs> <laughs> there is none. So we, we would be looking into, we, we, we were not uh, that bad. We were smoking cigarettes in the neighbor's yard and burned the playhouse down. You know, I was oh my eight goodness. years old, maybe. So yeah, I'd, we got some stories. So revelation back there, too. on the season finale. <laughs> oh, that's pretty cool. <laughs> all the lessons, all the learning, it comes from, it's, it's good insight though. Different, different backgrounds. Those backgrounds definitely influence who we are today. Yes, totally agree. You know, so what was your first paid job if your dad didn't pay you? Well, my first paid job was uh, I worked for a guy named Gigi who owned a series of liquor stores and I would break bottles and, and break the glass up and scoop it up and put it in barrels. We would sell those barrels of glass for a dollar and he paid me like 50 cents an hour. But before that, I actually worked for a guy, a, a guy named his name was Buster and there was Big Mike. They were two brothers and they did like. Um, they sold stuff. It would be like Maryville Swap Shop right now. They sold stuff that was like secondhand things. We would go get things. We would clean out old houses. Uh, when people got foreclosed on, and they would move all their stuff outside. They would make me go over there and load it up in a truck form. And they paid me 25 cents an hour. And, and they were some local hooligans. You know, I was, I was really intimidated by them. And, and I remember when Gigi offered me a job for 50 cents an hour, I had to tell them I was quitting because of the higher wages. I remember I was so scared. I remember I, I was crying when I told them and uh, they really just pep talked me up like, oh, you're a good worker. We probably should have paid you more. Go make that money. But anytime we need you, you got to come back. So I was making big wages, uh, 25 to 50 cents an hour. Uh, yeah, you just I, doubled your income. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But it, it was um it was a, both of them were different work, but I, but I learned a lot through doing them. And probably my first job where I got paid, I was a custodian in the summertime uh, when I was in junior high for our school district. And, and then I did that for a number of years. I did that until I graduated high school, as well as I worked parking cars uh, for the Cardinals baseball team in St. Louis, Missouri. Interesting thing about that is I couldn't drive a stick shift until I was probably 25, 26 years old. But I had to drive a stick shift at 16. 
I feel sorry for some of those cars I drove. <laughs> Good thing you knew how to change the transmission then. So. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure I learned a, a few. Did you have any inclination that you were going to be working in law enforcement when you were a kid? Well, yeah, I, I had some interesting role models around me. There was a, a, a young man named Boone Anderson, who was our local police chief. Uh, and my dad, his dad was named Clarence who was named after my great-grandfather, Clarence, and I'm Clarence Green Jr., who's my dad. My dad and his dad worked together and ran a business, a mechanic shop. And so this guy was very influential in my life, Boone Anderson, which would have been Clarence Anderson's son. And, and so I knew early on that I had an interest, interest in law enforcement. It was something that I thought I was passionate about. I saw a very bad death when I was a young kid. A, a person got shot and killed in front of my house and the police responded. And I remember when the, the, the one police officer jumped out and ran up there, another police officer said, son, sit back down. You know, it's, it's easier to work uh, a murder rather than an assault. So just let the guy die. And that's always played a part in my life to think about service. And I thought that was poor service. So I always wanted to think about how can you serve a community so that it is, it, it may be harder to work an assault but we're going to save someone's life, you know? And so I think about taking on a, a life of service, doing the things that, that are hard to do, but are right to do. And, and, and so that's always been my style and the value that I have. And, and so early on, I knew that was probably something I wanted to do for those reasons, because I wanted to be a better police officer to serve folks in the way I thought policing should be done. And I didn't think that was very effective. So, how did you make your college decision? So you're, you're working, you're a custodian at the school district, yep. right? How'd you decide to go to college? How did you choose your college? How did you end up at Northwest? All my life I've been, I've hung around a lot of older folks. And so kind of a little bit of an old soul. Uh, I knew my only opportunity to do something special would be to perhaps go off to college, but also go off to college at a different location than those uh, that, that I hung around with in high school because of career oppression, impressions. And in, in, in all my life, I've been kind of put in positions of leadership. And, and I knew that if I, if I hung around some folks that I had hung around with my whole life, it was easy for me to either try to defend them or be talked into something that's probably not going to end well for me. And, and then I knew early on in my community, it was a very big thing if you were a college graduate. So I only knew one person who had ever graduated college. And, and, and within our community of, of roughly 150,000 folks, there was this one young man who had graduated college. Everybody in my community knew him. And, and, and aspirationally, they thought different. They had some different access to different things and they were more of a change agent within our community. And so I saw that and I instantly thought like, man, I wanna, I, I, I need that to help me in my life because uh, I'm pretty narrow-minded because all I know is East St. Louis, Illinois, 100,000 folks, 99,900 of them look just like me and, and think very similar except this one person. And, and so I made a decision right then and there that I'm gonna try to go to college by any means necessary. I, I wanted to play basketball, but I was horrible. It, it, it never works. I thought I gotta get a scholarship. I only thought you can go to scholarship if you could pay for it or you had to get a scholarship. Well, academics, I, I wasn't strong there. Uh, I worked hard, but I just, it just wasn't my, I just wasn't strong enough, I thought. 
And, and I didn't know you could go by taking out loans. I didn't think that existed. And so I played football and, and I wasn't a good football player. I was an okay football player. I said, I'm going to just work hard because I'm heavy and I'm going to do the best I can to get a scholarship. Unfortunately, I got some scholarship offers, offers to go to various colleges. Most of the colleges my friends were going to, uh, because in, in my high school, we were a pretty good high school football team. Every senior would get a football scholarship. And I was nervous to go to a place where a lot of my friends were at. And, and so it was, it was, it was a, a quanky decision for me. And, 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 and so I decided to go somewhere where none of my friends were at. So I decided to go to Northwest. Jim Red, who was our athletic director at the time, he was very good friends with my coaches. He said this would be a better place for me and I can achieve those things that I want to achieve. And, and I never had no desires to, you know, to play in NFL or do anything. I just wanted to trade my athletic ability for an education. And in fact, when I got to college, my goal was I was always nervous I was going to take that scholarship away. And so I, I graduated in three years, not because I was smart, because I was scared I was going to lose that scholarship. But I was going to work as fast as I can to get my goal, which was that degree. And so that was my motives for going to college and working hard and knowing that I had to pass every class because I was trying to be on a two and a half year plan and, and, and done it, you know, because I, I could, I, I was so scared that I wouldn't be good enough as an athlete or somebody would come in because my friends would tell me, you know, like every year they're recruiting your replacement. So I'm thinking, I'm not very good. The, the next student they recruit in here is probably going to take my job and I'm going to lose my scholarship. And so I, it was a lot of things have changed. I know a lot better now. Like, man, I could have took out a loan. I didn't have to work so fast because I didn't have the traditional college experience, you know, of, of doing a lot of things because I was really just laser focused on I got to get done. That is crazy. It is. Yeah. Two and a half years to get done. Uh, your eight semesters, I guess, if you're going year round, you could get but that done. It took done. me three. It took yeah, me three. Still. You know, <laughs> but my goal was soon as possible because I didn't want to lose my scholarship. So I imagine Maryville, Missouri and East St. Louis are very different geographic areas and very oh, yes. different, you know, makeup. What was it like, you know, you're the VP of culture now. So was there a culture shock when you moved from, you know, East St. Louis, Illinois to sleepy little Maryville, Missouri? Oh, yes. First day is first day I, I came to campus. I, I, actually, when I came here, I caught a bus uh, to Kansas City, you know, and, and here's how goofy I was at the time, looked at a map, looking at a map, not that far from Kansas City uh, to Maryville, looking at a map, right? And I'm used to walking. You know, I lived in a city where you'd walk 30 blocks, 40 blocks, 50 blocks. So Clarence is walking from Kansas City to Maryville with his suitcase. Because that's all I brought with me was a suitcase, a few clothes. Luckily, someone saw me, gave me a ride. A football booster who had picked me up on my visit to Northwest saw me turned around and gave me a ride back to Maryville. Thank God. I had walked almost to St. Joseph uh, from Kansas. From but my, my mind, you know, I had never lived in a, in a rural area. Our, our distance was not that fine to me. And so then when I got here, big culture shop, moved into Dietrich Hall, walked to Walmart, bought me a 13-inch TV, a 12-gauge shotgun, a box of two boxes of bullets, Walked back to my dorm, plugged in my TV, walked out to the railroad tracks, shot my shotgun, set it up, made sure it was ready and put it in my room. Because I was it, it was a culture shock to, to, to me because I was very nervous that this might be the last days for Clarence. Because there were cows 
next to Dietrich Hall when I was in school here. You know, it, it was just it was just totally different than the environment that I was used to. Metropolitan area, everybody in my school looked just like me. And everybody, no one here looked like me. And the students that we have were diverse, were just so they didn't grow up in a community like mine. So it was such an, an oddity. Like I didn't grow up around any diversity. Then in that way, a lot of us are similar. <laughs> right? You're the totally right. And the urban, yeah. the rural students yeah. and the urban students are similar in that way. I was the exact, it would be just like a rural, we were the same. Okay. How'd you pick your major? Well, um, felt, since uh, you were laser focused, that seems incredible. Well, I fell in love with, uh, I met Dr. Newstetter very early on. We're still lifelong friends to this day. He, he had marched with Martin Luther King and he had all these posters in his room. And we got into and, and the way I'm, the way what attracts me to most people is an argument. We we got into an argument and and it really just it attracted me to his way of thinking. You know, although I didn't agree with it, but I was just fascinated by it. And it was I was locked ever since. You know, I took every course form. You know, up until he retired, we ate dinner every day, every Wednesday. We had a meal at my house every Wednesday. Uh, we still talk once a week, you know, it was, his mind was just something I was so intrigued with. Out of this guy from Washington, D.C., go to Georgia, walk with King of Jewish descent, you know, his, his parents experienced the Holocaust, you know, his life w was so interesting to me, yet we were so competitive, and we're still that way today. We enjoy the same comedy, the same music, the same authors. You know, we still do things together to this day because it, 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 I think we probably our attraction is just each other's minds. Sociology is a good preparation for law enforcement, though, right? It, it, it was. It, it, it really helped me a lot to think about communities. Yes. Yeah. Communities, environments and just culture in, in itself, because that's a, that's a lot of what law enforcement is, relationships, community. It really was very helpful. We're in career services. So how did you approach your thought of what you were going to do after college? It really worked out great for me. Joan, it was Inzemeyer at the time, Schneider, worked in financial aid. Leslie Galbraith was the athletic success person. And together, uh, because of academics and athletics, they had created this award, this national award, reference to athletes who are doing well academically, and, and their advisors, and Dr. Galbraith won it because of the work that we did together. Her and Joan Snyder were best friends. We all went to receive the award together, and, and Joan Snyder was a career services person right then and there. So she was working with me on what's next, you know, right then and there. And so that's what led me into, and, and what I was interested in was law enforcement. At one time, it was more, so I was, I was interested in criminal justice. Because at one time it steered more towards juveniles, and that's what was my first steer in law enforcement. I worked for Juvenile Correctional Center, Illinois, then worked for one in Missouri, then moved into law enforcement at Maryville Public Safety, then at the campus. And, and, and so she really opened my eyes to here are some opportunities in that field. So you went back to Illinois after you graduated? Yep, for, for a very brief stint, worked in juvenile, and then... Uh, what gets most young folks is I had a, a young lady that I was courting that said, I'm moving to Maryville. Uh, you're either coming or you're not. And, and so I said, I'm coming. <laughs> <laughs> so you went back to Illinois, then you came back right back to Maryville. Yep. 
So when you came back, then is when you started working with with uh, public safety. I worked for I worked in uh, Tarkio, Missouri. They had uh, a a juvenile correctional center. I worked there for a year and a year and a half. And then I went over to Maryville Public Safety for three to four years. Then I came out to the campus. What was your role? I was a police officer at Maryville Public Safety, uh, and then Dr. Bob Bush had hired a new chief of police here at the university. And he had just asked, he would always fail to pay gas at gas stations. And so I would always be working on those days. So I would pay the gas for him, go to his place and remind him he forgot to pay the gas. And he would just laugh and cackle and we would just talk. And um, he would always reimburse me also. <laughs> and, and, and then he had, he had just stopped me one day and said, hey, we had, we had a new chief out here and I think she needs your help. The university needs you. You know, it was like your alma mater asking you, we need you. You know, how do you say no? Uh, and so it was like, we need you to come out there and help be a leader of a shift and help this other leader out. And so easy. Yes. Uh, it also the win for me was I coached football in the Maryville School District as well. And so it allowed me just to work night shifts so I could continue coaching and helping out kids. because My focus was really on juveniles. At, at that time and intersecting with that work, although I was a police officer. Uh, and so then it just blossomed from there. So the work of either in a corrections facility or as a police officer, talk to us a little bit about what you do. I'm sure it's different every day, right? Yeah. And and, and, and truly we're, we're really in the people business as a police officer. We're in the people business. The number one thing that you're going to do is communicate. Uh, and, and what I've learned is I love to hire folks or in communication, education, anything other than criminal justice, we could teach you how to use the law in an enforcement manner. What we need is people who communicate, connect, have high empathy. And, and that's what we do every day is, uh, what, what my typical day exists of, I, I'm up early, I'm reading articles, I'm, I'm kind of doing an environmental scan. I get all of this data sent to me by different bureau, like uh, Missouri Police Chiefs Association, International Chiefs of Police, I'll read through all those series of articles to try to make connections about what's going on in our environment. How should we be shaping our response? We know our mental health cases are up. And so I'm trying to monitor those things. I'm also trying to make sure we build capacity in our people. And am I coming into work to check on the folks who work night shift, day shift, unit shift, see how they're doing? Because when they're doing all of these, our check well-beings are a little bit out of control. A check well-being is a mental health call for a police officer. Typical agency probably maybe does one of those a week. We're doing about seven of those a day. And so, but that takes a, a toll and a secondary impact on that police officer. Hearing all of that pain in Clarence's lens is not normal, nor are police officers built for that. They have to be a little bit type A to be successful in their work, although have high empathy. But you can wear them out pretty quickly with all the empathy because an officer will have to listen to someone who is at their lowest low, be very empathetic, take that person to the hospital to get additional help or not talk with a, a survivor of a sexual assault, be extremely empathetic, connecting, but then at two minutes later, dealing with someone who is drunk and not nauseous, trying to poke their eye out with a pencil, you know, so you're going from all of these different levels Yet you have to do all of that with respect and dignity and you can't have a bad day. And so sometimes I'm coming in just to relieve them, say, sit, close your eyes, take a bite, take a drink, take a walk, 
as well as walk with them just to assess them. Because the number one thing we can give to our people is time to sit and talk with them, just to listen and learn and understand what's going on. Sometimes it's just a release. Some of them just need to be left alone. So I have, but then the only way I can know that is I have to sit with them to learn that. And so I'm trying to make sure that I'm a resource multiplier for those officers. And then we have our daily work, you know, reviewing all of the reports that we get every day, uh, the criminal reports, just the, the non-criminal reports, making sure that we're following back up with the victims that we've had of crime, because we pride ourselves on communication. So we make sure that all of our officers or I'm following up with folks form. Uh, typically, we, we, you know, we're in a university setting, so we have a lot of meetings as, as well. And, and, and they're very productive. Like, I really enjoy them. I, I, I am invigorated by a lot of the things that we get done here as a university, as an institution. And, and then uh, uh, some part of that day, you know, we're taking complaints also, whether it be you announce a date, we're going to have a, a day off and some people are excited and some people are not, you know, but you got to listen to all of them because we, we have a, a fascinating culture and something very special that we don't give enough credit for. And, you know, we all give out that engagement survey and we'll always hear, you know, I felt like I couldn't share my thoughts. Clarence is going to say a little bit of that is BS because he'll get calls, emails, texts with everybody sharing their thoughts. You know, I'm thinking like, what? so, so, but that, that's really good though, because we have a culture where folks can share their voice. And there's not going to be any retaliation or anything for it. And I think that's good. I think that's healthy. I love when, when students, confront us. They do a lot on social media, like, we think this is wrong. We'll invite them in and say, come in and help us solve the problem. We'll map out the problem. And what we'll do is say, let's try it. You, you know, we're not afraid to try it. And we're not afraid to say we're wrong uh, because we do make mistakes. We'll move together together. And then sometimes you guys will see where we'll say, nope, this is what we're doing. We're, we're going to continue down this path. You, you know, because sometimes we believe we're unequivocally right for that moment. Uh, and, and sometimes it's, it's just got to happen that way. But, but we're always going to be open for the conversation. And so a typical day is just a, it's just a lot of those things. And, and an old police officer once told me this when I first started. He said, police work is about 85% sure border. That is 15% just crazy excitement. And he says, you have to be prepared for that, that 85%, you know. For both aspects of it. Where you're dealing with just a lot of routine calls. Someone's upset. You, you know, like you would be amazed at what people will report. You know, I, I went to my I went to my room this morning. I opened my notebook and there was a piece of paper that was ripped out. I think it happened in my math class. I don't know who did it. Was there anything of value on that paper? Nope. But I think someone stole a sheet of paper. OK, you have to handle that at the same level of empathy and care is what you're doing someone who's experienced a physical assault or, 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 you know, because it's important to that individual. And a lot of times you're thinking like, come on now, get on out of here with that. You know, but, but you, can't, you can't respond that way. You mentioned bringing students in and saying, let's solve this problem together. Yep. Um, and so I was thinking there, as I was hearing the story of Clarence walking from Kansas City to St. Joe, because when I went to school here, uh, as an undergrad, there was no public transportation. So can you talk about safe rides? Yep, totally a student-driven idea. We were, uh, we were very fortunate th that we, we built some relationships and we had a lot of people who helped us. There was a, a person who worked in student envi involvement named Brian Van Osdale. 
Luckily, we had hit it off. I think he may have had a flat tire when he first moved here. We changed his tire. So he kind of had a liking to us. And he says, would you come out to this alcohol summit in a police form to make sure these kids are not drinking? And, and, and we said, we won't do that. We want to come out and be involved. And, and, and we don't want to give answers. We just want to listen. And boy, it was ingenious. We just listened. Students enjoyed it, asked us a few questions, but mainly stayed clear of us and just shared information amongst their group. A month from there, they come up with the idea that we should have this transportation service that moves students around to lower DWIs. Because at that time, we averaged three fatalities a year of our college students within the city limits of Maryville. They pitched the idea. They asked some other offices to do it. Didn't happen. They came to us last and said, would you do it? This is crazy for a police department to do because you should be arresting people. You know, we said, we'll do it. We'll do it as a pilot. We made the pitch to the institution. We ran it as a pilot. It, it has blown up since then. You know, we did a, 150 transportations in that first piloted semester. Now we do about 15,000 a year. We haven't had a fatality accident from a university student driving uh, a vehicle impaired since we've had the system. We lowered DWIs by 67%. You know, it feels good when our students say, if you drive impaired, you should get arrested because we have a service there that's out there driving around. I don't care how long you got to wait. Use that service because it's going to get you somewhere safely. And, and the most profound thing to me is that that's, those are students' ideas. And, and, and we love those ideas when they come in and, and they work. Like our social media was a student idea. Students drove that whole process. They built the whole platform. They do all of the work. Uh, most of the things that we've done has always been in a team approach and students' idea. When I think of pizza and police, Coco with the Pope, those are all student ideas that said, we think you should be doing this and this is how you should be doing it. And we just say, let's give it a try. And, and we've done a lot of them that haven't worked. You know, a lot of people think everything you do turns to go like most of it never worked. You know, they but know you the don't glory. see those ugly failures. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They don't know the story. You know, like, yeah, I remember one time we gave away free. We put on every parking ticket. You got 10 percent off at the union. Drastic failure. That was the last idea I had. I've never pitched another idea. Drastic failure. One of the things that's always stood out to me about university police at Northwest is, you know, you guys, you know, you think of police and you think of responding to crimes and not necessarily the most popular department on campus. I'd say UPD is one of the most popular departments on campus. Has that been something that has been, was it that way when you came in or is that something that's been built over time where you have that goodwill of the community? I think it's something that we really worked hard to build. You know, we, our goal was never to be popular. We just wanted to we wanted to treat, create a way that students would have access, that we would get reports of sexual assault, violence, because I think at, at, at Northwest, I believe, I don't have the exact data, but I believe we have the highest number of sexual assault. I believe that's because of the comfort level of our survivors, but we're still not getting enough because we know one in five young women between the age 18 and 24 are sexually assaulted. We're not getting 700 and some reports, we're getting seven to 15. You know, but I think because students feel comfortable because they feel like they have access to us and, and they feel like they have voice and that we're going to be confidential. That's what we're really trying to build with our students. And, and if what I've had to learn to adjust and accept is that if it means that we have to be popular, that's OK, because I think Mark Hornicle will tell you I had him do a study this doc class a year ago because I wanted to get rid of social media. It, it was it was just driving me bonkers. I thought folks wanted us to be more entertaining than what we were helpful. And so I wanted to get rid of the whole thing. 
Well, through the course of his study, what he found is folks thought it was a connection. It was a positive. It did give them access. And so <clears throat> we, we couldn't get rid of it, but it's really working in the way that it should be. And, and, and it's something that's really helped me because it's not something that I'm naturally inclined to do. Like a lot of times I'm not a big communicator, but it's forced me to think about communication in a whole different way and how we're communicating messaging out and how we're responding to those that we, we serve. And how people that you're, you're, you're tweeting, but people are actually feeling a connection from your tweeting from your phone. That's, that's crazy. Like the, the leverage of that. Yes. And we've done some things early. Like we do a lot of cookouts at my house with students where we'll do focus groups. We'll have 20 to 50 students out there and we'll do a fish fry or a barbecue and we'll be picking their mind on what's next. Uh, and you guys work with students also. We have 52 student employees that work out of UPD. So it's such a pleasure to be because those folks give us tons of insights. Here's what you shouldn't be doing. Here's what you should be doing. Here's what that means when you, when you say that word. Oh, I didn't I didn't know that had a triple meaning. Yeah, we hear that all the time. Absolutely. <laughs> it's, it's scary. Let's go back to your education. So you're you're working on campus, you're a police officer, um, UPD. Why did you go back and get a master's degree? I'll talk about my master's and my doctorate because I'm not as proud of my master's as I am my doctorate. But I'm but I'm not I'm, I'm proud of my doctorate because of the reason I got it. Uh, but but I, I don't want to think of it as vanity because I think everybody's on their own journey and you learn what you want to learn when you want to learn. I'm just, I, I'm, I'm just kind of a slow learner. And I think I've shared this with you before. Before I got my doctorate, I didn't really understand what critical thought was or, or learning was. It is the greatest experience for me in my life, educational experience. My master's, I really got it because when I, when I worked at the university, I didn't know enough about higher ed. Everyone that I worked with had a master's degree except me. I felt like people explained things differently. I couldn't make a connection. I felt a little bit out of a place. So a lot of it was, it's called a self-doubt, not enough inspiration in me. So I did it a little bit for the wrong reasons. I wish I would have did it for the learning because I did. And so never do anything that's not going to be for the learning because I missed some opportunities there. But my doctorate degree, I did it pure for the learning. I wanted to learn more. I wanted to be sharper for the people we serve, for the people that I, that report directly to me because I believe Every day I have to be better to, to serve those that I have to work with. And so the folk, everybody that was reporting to me had a master's degree and, and they're so sharp and so, and so smart and can figure things out. So I said, Clarence got to get a lot better unless Clarence is replaceable. And, and I have to be, then how am I going to be able to pour into them with, without knowing some additional information also? And so, and it was, and, and it was a greatest learning experience I've ever had in my life. And, and uh, I think you could do it with anything. I think if I would have had a different thought process for my master's, I could have had the same thing. You know, I, I know I didn't have that for my, my bachelor's because I was on a race. And my master's was more, man, I don't fit in. So let me get this so I could be more like you. And I didn't get to learn. But my doctorate was all for the learning. And, and, and I'm still learning from it today. You know, like it, it is, it has been tremendous for me as an individual. I learned so much about me and, and, and so much just about different concepts, leadership, higher education, all types of things, policies and analysis, processes. Uh, it, it's really helped me in my life in every step of the way. 
Well, you know, and you mentioned the masters doing it for the wrong reasons, but I think knowing you and then knowing kind of the mystique of Clarence on campus, you know, you're kind of, you're, you're almost a Bobby Bearcat level figure on campus to a lot of us. I mean, really, because you've been around for a long time, you know, it's rare that people run towards the university police chief to talk to them instead of away from them. And that's something that happens, but hearing the fact that, you know, you got your master's because basically you had imposter syndrome. We all feel that we work with a lot of students who are either getting ready to join the workforce or just join the workforce and they are struggling with that. So to hear that this happens to everybody, even, you know, someone who has been around for a long time and is, you know, an institutional kind of pillar, it happens to all of us. So I think that's really valuable for students to hear that, you know, that even Clarence has felt that sometimes. So, yeah, that's awesome. You say you talk a lot about learning. You you developed your critical thought process. Out of that doctoral experience, what do you think was a real crisp key point maybe that you could bring home about the, a lot of people don't have doctoral degrees. So if you are a student maybe, or someone with a master's degree, maybe considering doing a doctoral program, like what key takeaway in your experience with that, would you, what advice would you give them? What key takeaway would you express to them? I would say if you went into your bachelor's with just an open mind, and you wanted to just purely, like I would say, lose yourself in the learning and just truly read and consume everything and think about it and think of, and try to think about it from someone else's perspective. Meet with people who are different than you and hear their perspective because you'll be like, ooh, I never thought of that. I didn't even read that word. Go back and re-examine it and just take your time and, and enjoy the process. Because when I've taken my time, did the reading, read it twice, three times, boy, it's, it's, it's beautiful. Like it gets me fired up right now. And that's what I did in my doctoral experience. But I have seen some folks. What I love is I see folks doing it in their bachelor's. That's, what, that's why I know most folks are, 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 are I'm always trying to learn because I, I don't want to be left behind. And, I, and I'm a late, late learner. Most folks know this in their bachelor's. And that's why they're so smart. But the people we're hiring are smarter than us. We have to keep learning so that we can keep motivating them and giving them experiences. But I think if you, you do it at any level of learning, unfortunately for me, it happened at my, at my doctorate level. But, but, but what, it, what it challenged me with is I'm still learning today. I, like I took a Six Sigma course. Uh, I still talk with Dr. Neusteller and we'll do book reviews together. I still, you know, because I, I don't ever want to, the minute I'm done learning, I probably should just quit working, you know, because you, you're, you're going to be stale. You know, you should always be willing to try and do new things. You got to be willing to fail. You know, that's why you need. And then we have to create places where it's safe to fail also. Don't put someone in the project where it's unsafe to fail for their first or second time. You know, but we have to create projects where folks can fail safe and fail forward. And so because we got to be there to pick them up and, and, and help get them right back on their feet because they're going to help us do something great. But I, I just love learning. When you're hiring someone, what do you look for? Right now, I, I'm big on empathy. I want someone who is high in empathy, who can put themselves in other, other shoes, who could give grace. That's the number one trait I'm looking for. I'm also looking for folks who are lifelong learners, who are willing to learn and accept information. Something we call intellectual humility also. I want someone who can accept when they're wrong and accept someone else has superior information and carry it through. That's big for me that you run into that with a lot of type A folks, which law enforcement brings about. This is my way. It's the only way. What they have to be able to do is accept that when someone else telling them something, it's the, it's the best information and they go from there. 
I also look for people who can communicate. You have to be able to talk, express yourself, give answers that have some sort of breadth and depth to it. Because what I found in police officers, those folks who don't have those skill sets struggle in our environment here and will struggle with our leadership. And, and typical other leaders, I look for those same things a little bit because the folks who I work with now, like in HR and IR, they're going to have to be a subject matter expert because I, I'm not in those fields. So they're going to have to have those same skill set. They're going to have to bring some, some subject matter expertise to that field also. Because the only thing I'm going to be good for is I maybe can help define some problems so you can go run with them. I can help answer some questions and I can clear paths for you. But if you want me to figure out the integration policy, it's going to be a, a, a massive failure. We haven't talked too much here about being VP of culture. But what is that, your role is that, and role as police chief. So how do you view your role as VP of culture? It's, it's really still in the people business, connecting folks, connecting people, developing people, creating engagement for our campus, codifying some processes. And, and really, I believe today, really, we've been fermenting for a while around culture. And, and, and the culture team is our, our police personnel, Egon and Barkas. And today we did some beautiful work. At our team meeting, we, were, we talked about codifying some processes that we do that we're gonna share throughout the entire institution. And they're gonna be coming within the, hopefully within the next 30 days. And it's gonna help us just with communication. Like we saw some communication errors that we made through our announcement and some pathways that we've done things. And we're gonna try to clean that up. Like, here's what we know that's successful. We had, when COVID hit us as a culture team, what we did was we advised senior leadership to have meetings with the SLT, the executive staff council, the exec of faculty senate, our leadership forum, and then we would do our board of regents, then we would do a campus announcement. We didn't do that with this, but we just did this with budget. Why would we go over budget in such detail? We won't trust folks with a day off. You know what I mean? You know what I mean? Like, I think they can keep it confidential. You know what I mean? And so it just makes you question what you're trying to do and why. Because a lot of times we were thinking, well, this would be a great surprise. You know, so I get it. It was done with kindness, but does it throw off things? So how do we codify a process and publish it? Because that's what builds culture also, that folks know this is the process. And so if it's not in the process and we didn't communicate, so well, what in the process? So maybe we approve the process. They're done being angry at Clarence or someone else, we all had an opportunity to infuse that in the process. And, and so to me, that's beautiful work because it's going to help us as a campus, a culture, and here's how we're going to communicate things. And that's our biggest failure. As a, That's what causes the most anxiety, I believe, in failure. A lot of times it's not the salary, it's not this, it's not that. It's how everything's communicated. And if we can at least publish, here's how, we're still going to get it wrong, we're always going to be able to go back and improve our process. And so that's why I think today was just, it was just beautiful. It was three folks in the room just vibing, throwing some stuff on the whiteboard. And now we have something that we can give out to our entire campus community and say, help us. It's an example of that very same thing that you said, I might be wrong, that humility, right? Like this was the intent. We threw it out with that intent. But now, you know, we've gotten the feedback. Oh, maybe that wasn't the best idea. So now we're going to go toward improving the process. That's just what we're going to do. We're going to codify it and we're going to, everybody should have it. You know, so then I, I, I guarantee you, we're all going to agree to something 
And I guarantee you we're going to miss something. We're running out of time for you here, Clarence. But what does it mean for you to be a Bearcat? I, I'll say being a Bearcat is showing pride. It's connecting with, with others. It's practicing civility. It's being a lifelong learner. And it's caring about your feather Bearcats uh, across our campus in our community. I think our president wrote that three or four years ago about being a Bearcat. And so I hate to be cliche, but I, I really think about that a lot. And the reason it, it connects a lot to me is this summer, you know, we had a racial incident around the George Floyd and our students reminded us of this is what it means to be a Bearcat. And so that, that has stayed with me since that moment, that being a Bearcat is something very special, something none of us should take lightly. And I want to make sure that I'm practicing those all the time. So here's your flat plane where you can just run, run, run. I've been giving all my guests a little plateau at the end to just share what's on their mind, share what's on their heart, share about what's coming in the future. There you go, Clarence, run. A lot's going on in the future. What's in front of me right now is just our institutional budget. I think we, we have to get that solidified and get and work with our board of regents. Uh, and so that's really taking on my mind right now. But also I, I feel really just fortunate this morning's activity just with the culture team was such tremendous vibe. I love, I really don't have anything coming forward so the flat plane's gonna sound a little different to me. I just really love being in conversations and doing work where everyone's vibing and, and you trying to produce something. And, and even if it's, you go back and change it, well, it sure felt good. Like I, I love doing things that are meaningful. And a lot of times in my day, I'm doing some just work. And I don't like that. I love to be able to do those things that are meaningful. And, and what I did this morning was, whoop, that was beautiful. Well, we certainly think the work you're doing is very meaningful. So yes. thank you for, for everything you've done for Northwest over the years and continue to do too. So No, thank you. Thank you both. All right. We have appreciated you having, having you on our podcast as a guest. So thank you for taking the time. Oh, I appreciate you guys. Thank you. All right. Well, that will do it for this season of Behind the Bearcat. We'll talk to you next time. Mm-hmm.